This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on Monocle 24 on Saturday the 27th of March. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, delivers his weekly column. You understand a film and its characters far better if you have to read the subtitles and can hear the real actors. Listening to anything dubbed into English is like ordering beans on toast in an Italian restaurant. Then we'll whisk you to the Alpine Spa Sanctuary, which is Schloss Elmau, to hear how the luxury destination is bouncing back with an exciting series of events planned for the summer. Plus, Andrew Muller on mandatory flag-waving. We learned that the citizens of the UK may have to adapt to a new regime of compulsory patriotism, which, as we all know, is the most meaningful kind of patriotism. All that coming up on Monocle on Saturday. First, here are the headlines. Myanmar's security forces shot and killed at least 16 protesters today, news reports and witnesses said. As the leader of the ruling junta said, the military will protect the people and strive for democracy. The latest deaths will add to a toll of 328 people killed in the crackdown that has followed the coup against Aung San Suu Kyi's elected government. North Korea said today that the administration of US President Joe Biden had taken a wrong first step and revealed deep-seated hostility by criticising its self-defensive missile test. Biden said the test violated UN Security Council resolutions, but he remained open to diplomacy with Pyongyang. Georgia's sweeping new voting restrictions have come under attack, with civil rights groups challenging them in court, and President Joe Biden saying the US Justice Department was examining what he called an atrocity of a law, which imposes stricter identification requirements, limits drop boxes, gives lawmakers the power to take over local elections, and shortens the early voting period for all runoff elections. It also makes it a misdemeanor for people to offer food and water to voters in line in a state where people sometimes wait for hours in the heat to vote. And our weekend edition email bulletin comes with a few assorted thoughts on French electro and statesman-like haircuts. Plus, how you can get your hands on Elvis Presley's guitar. Head to monocle.com forward slash minute for your own copy. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Let's have a look through the papers now. And joining me to do that is Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks. Charles, good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, Very nice to talk to you again. Very soon, I hope, we will be back in the studio together. I am very, very much looking forward to that. I'm counting the days, actually the weeks, until my second vaccine. And right after that, I will be darkening your doorstep. Fantastic. Uh, Now, talking about dark news and quite a lot of dark humour also being uh, generated by this, the ship is still stuck. That's right, Georgina. For those of you who are tracking the saga of the ship called the Ever Given that has currently cut the Suez Canal in half. Um, The FT has put four reporters on the story, three in London and one in Japan, as a matter of fact, and has produced an absolutely riveting 30,000-foot view 
of the crisis under the headline, New Suez Crisis, a Global Economy Creaking Under the Strain. Um, this is a fascinating long read. For those of you who want the short version, there is actually a new website called istheshipstillstuck.com. <laughs> and you're welcome to visit that website as well as read VFT. Um, and also speaking of 30,000 views, we have to say that um, some of the satellite images that have been produced of the ever given, you know, astride the Suez Canal are absolutely remarkable, shot from outer space with incredible resolution and, and, and detail. In any case, here is what the FT tells us. Um, first of all, the ever given is almost as long as the Empire State Building is tall. Um, and 10% of global trade goes through the Suez Canal, 10% of global oil goes through the Suez Canal. Um, and that's every day. Um, and so what this does is this blockade um, by the stuck ship is holding up $9.6 billion worth of goods every single day that the Suez Canal is clogged like this. Um, and it's just absolutely remarkable. This comes at a time, Georgina, when you know global supply chains and global trade is absolutely stressed to the max, particularly in shipping. And, and just here's another little analogy that comes from a colleague of mine that said, if every container on the Ever Given was being shipped by rail, that train would have to be 72 kilometers long. So imagine what one ship represents to global trade. And the system is already absolutely stressed to the max by the global trade in, first of all, personal protective equipment. It's, you know, global ship shipping is rammed with face masks, basically. And it's also rammed with all of the things that we've been buying while we've been sitting at home for the past year. And that's all the new tables that we've bought and all the new display screens, all the new monitors that we've bought to adjust to working from home. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this story in the FT is that it's not just shipping. The FT tells us about some fires recently, one in Japan and then the crisis in Texas um, with the blackout and the snowstorm there in chip making. And that's not the potato kind, that's the semiconductor kind. And so you had a fire at a chip plant in Japan and you had the shutdown at some chip factories in Texas as a result of the storm. And that brought automotive manufacturing to a screeching halt. So with everything just in time these days, um, we've got a just in time crisis in the Suez Canal that's got us all waiting to see how this unfolds. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Um, Charles, just on shopping, what's the most interesting thing that you've bought during lockdown? Oh, God, it's all so desperately boring, I have to tell you. Um, but the, the best discovery that I've made is organic meat and produce from Wales. Um, and I'm, I've become addicted. And I'm having a delivery once a week of some of the most beautiful fruits and vegetables and um, beef and poultry from an organic farm in Wales that has turned into my lifeline. How about you, Georgina? Uh, I guess a pair of stone leopards. <laughs> That's I probably, beg your pardon? <laughs> that was probably the most interesting, but I did just the other day buy a sofa by mistake um, and now I'm not quite sure what to do with it. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? Um, That's right. <laughs> After you. Uh, let's go to the New York Times. Now, this is this 
awful law, which which Joe Biden has called an, an abomination. Uh, and uh, Georgia has passed this legislation. It's not the only state to do so. Others are going in the same direction. Tell us what the New York Times has to say about this. That's right. We're going to go a little bit deeper into the news item that you mentioned at the very top of the broadcast. Um, and what the New York Times tells us um, in a headline that says Georgia law kicks off partisan battle over voting rights. Um, what the New York Times is telling us is this is becoming a national issue. Uh, and Georgia was only the first of a number of U.S. states that are genuinely making it much more difficult to vote. And so the, the other states that have become battlegrounds in voting rights are actually states that were battlegrounds between Republicans and Democrats in the 2020 elections. And that includes places like Texas, Florida, Arizona, and Wisconsin, among others. Um, but those state names should be quite familiar to everyone because these were significant battlegrounds uh, in the 2020 election. Um, Georgia is a particular area of focus because of what it did to the Senate um, and how and the role of absentee and postal voting in Georgia and frankly in states all around uh, the U.S. in the 2020 presidential elections. And, you know, here's the difficulty in the United States, and that is that voting, by and large, is run by the states. And President Biden, as you mentioned, is trying to fix this on the federal level by saying, you know, there are certain things you can and certain things you can't do when you're messing with the voting system. But the states are saying, sorry, we're going to do whatever we like. This is a state matter as laid out in the Constitution. And, and as is the case with everything in the United States, Georgina, everything sooner or later winds up in the courts. Um, and there is already just literally hours after the passing of this new law in Georgia, there is a legal challenge. Um, this will start at the state level. But I suppose that someday in the not too distant future, you and I will be back on this broadcast talking about Supreme Court battles over voting rights. So, you know, watch The New York Times and watch this space. Absolutely. Uh, right. Time just for a quick look at the Japan Times and new, uh, new maps and, and new discoveries about Mount Fuji. That's right. Um, this is meant to be an interesting story, um, not a disaster story. But the Japan Times tells us under the headline, new map shows Mount Fuji eruption could affect larger areas. For the first time in 17 years, Japanese authorities have re-examined the potential impact area of an eruption from Mount Fuji. And, and uh, does everybody know that Mount Fuji is still an active volcano? I didn't really know that, to be quite honest with you. I thought it just sort of sat there looking absolutely beautiful. Um, but it is an active volcano. And basically what Japan, um, Japanese authorities have done is they've said that, first of all, Mount Fuji can actually eject much more lava than they initially anticipated. That lava can travel much more quickly than they thought and can spread much more widely. So as a result, uh, you know, lots of new details, lots of new information, and Japanese towns and cities all around Mount Fuji are now busy updating their crisis management plans. Very interesting stuff. Charles, I'm going to leave you to get back to your organic groceries. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much for, for joining us. That's Charles Hecker there from uh, Control Risk. And this is Monocle on Saturday. it's time to hear from our Editor-in-Chief, Andrew Tuck. By now, everyone over 50 in the UK has been offered a vaccine, 
but so too have quite a few people in their 40s, even if officially they were supposedly going to be made to wait until supply chains were flowing more smoothly again. This week, I've spoken to two friends in this latter category who, while delighted to be vaccinated, have clearly been troubled that people may be thinking they've already hit the half-century mark. I was so surprised to be called. I really didn't think that they would be offering it to people in my age group, said one. I had mine weeks ago. I was not called early. We started watching the Israeli TV series Alice and after about 10 minutes of listening to people speaking Hebrew, I asked he, who is in charge of the remote, whether he thought there might be subtitles. Menus were reselected, but this time it clicked into dubbed English. It was definitely better in Hebrew without subtitles. We did get there eventually. Then, last night, we watched the Sophia Loren movie, The Life Ahead, and somehow it also launched into dubbed English. While that may be my language, you understand a film and its characters far better if you have to read the subtitles and can hear the real actors. Listening to anything dubbed into English is like ordering beans on toast in an Italian restaurant. Might seem simpler, but it's just not right. As a teenager, seeing anything with subtitles also seemed oddly glamorous. After a French movie at the local art centre, you would leave determined to take up smoking gitan, only drive a Citroën, once you had a licence, mind, or at least persuade your parents to serve you croissant for breakfast. The Life Ahead is filmed in Puglia, in the city of Bari. It's portrayed as a place of drug deals and prostitution, yet despite having no desire to be employed in either trade, it's a little bit late in the day for such a dramatic career switch, it makes you want to visit. The heat, the sounds, and I hope Sophia Loren. Lee Isaac Chung's multiple Oscar-nominated movie Minari has been my other film high of recent days, but oddly, I have no desire to move to Arkansas, become a vegetable farmer, or live in a house on wheels. It is, however, moving. The film, and potentially the house, and beautiful. I hope it cleans up. Sophie Loren is 86, and a woman happy to reveal every crease and blemish that age has given her. A screen idol whose age and beauty continue to be intertwined. On April the 12th, restaurants in England can reopen after months of being shuttered. Over the past year, some of these companies have pivoted to home delivery with a dexterity that is impressive, somehow creating either ready-to-devour meals or dishes that you assemble at home that are true to their brand values while never pretending to be the same offer that you would get while seated in their establishment. The London restaurant Luca has made me very happy, so to have Honey and Smoke and the chefs who operate the cook and thief service. They have found packaging solutions and ways of talking to their customers that win you over, keep you loyal, reveal their inventiveness. They should be hired as consultants by some of the big corporates who have allowed every touchpoint with their brands to evaporate, who warn you on every call that, due to COVID, you're about to be messed around and generally abused. Or at least that's what their holding messages might as well say. I was talking in the office about Minari and the life ahead with Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco, 
Brazilian, penchant for a tropical shirt, the first person in shorts come summer every year, great on Latin American politics. He told me that he had applied to be on the TV quiz Mastermind and that he had three potential specialist topics, the cinema box office, the life and times of Madonna and Eurovision. I realised I have no specialist subject. OK, let's end on a nice note. Laura Pausini singing in Italian, Lo Si, written by Diane Warren from The Life Ahead, is nominated for an Oscar Best Original Song. I haven't got a clue what she's on about, but I promise it makes perfect sense. Many thanks there to our editor-in-chief there, Andrew Tuck. Now, our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, joins us. We learned this week of the frankly overdue arrival of what may be the defining metaphor for these thwarted and bewildered times. I got a mule and her name is Sal. Fifteen miles on the Erie Canal. Wrong canal, but whatever. We also learned that steering a large container ship along a straightish waterway is maybe more difficult than it looks. Or maybe not, given that everybody but the mighty Taiwanese-owned Panama-flagged cargo vessel ever given seems to manage it OK. Oh, meow! On Wednesday, exactly that 400-metre, 224,000-tonne behemoth ran aground, pivoted sideways across the Suez Canal and pranged into whatever the technical term for the side of a canal is, blocking a not negligible percentage of global shipping, if you're wondering where that thing you ordered has got to. We also learned that dislodging a 224,000-tonne ship from such a predicament is not the fastest moving of spectacles, so we did a bit of research to pass the time and discovered that there is a precedent. The so-called Yellow Fleet of 15 dust-blown boats which spent eight years stuck in the Suez Canal after it was closed by the Six-Day War of 1967. The community of marooned crews held inter-ship sporting tournaments, including lifeboats, races and established a postal service. No. Really? Oh, Whoa. that blows my Whoa. mind. No way. Blow me down. Yeah, just watch Adam Curtis tell that story over some oblique choice of Joy Division tune rather than the obvious madness one, claim it somehow explains 9-11 and win another BAFTA. Hack. In the United States, we learned of an exciting innovation in legal strategy from Sidney Powell, the Trumpist solicitor who you may recall standing alongside Rudy Giuliani and propounding the intriguing theory that the 2020 presidential election had been stolen by Hillary Clinton, the ghost of Hugo Chavez and 3250 feral hogs. 
or whatever it was. Powell is presently on the receiving end of a potentially expensive defamation lawsuit from Dominion, the company which made the voting machines that Powell identified as the key apparatus of this monstrous deception. She seemed pretty sure of herself at the time. We are not going to be intimidated. We are not going to back down. We are going to clean this mess up now. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it. Or, upon sober reflection, not. We learned that the defense Powell is floating is essentially that this was all good, clean, First Amendment protected knockabout political rhodomontade. Come on, we're just having fun here. Here's the key line from Powell's motion to dismiss Dominion's lawsuit, as read by Monocle's desperate climb-downs desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. No reasonable person would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact. So we learned what a good thing it was that nobody took any of this stuff seriously enough to smash up the Capitol and murder a police officer or anything. Here in the UK, meanwhile... We learned that it is suddenly of utmost importance that absolutely all communication issued by or on behalf of any British officialdom is liberally upholstered with the national flag. A controversy erupted, for which read a bunch of silly and boring people with nothing better to do kicked theatrically off, over BBC News presenters mildly teasing one zooming in MP over his red, white and blue background prop. Robert Jenrick, uh, thank you. I think your uh, flag is not up to standard size uh, government interview uh, <laughs> measurements. I think it's just a little bit small, but uh, that's your department really. But we learned that this would not be an end to it, as another MP, James Wilde, representing the lucky people of Northwest Norfolk, all of whose other problems have presumably been solved, pressed the BBC's Director General on a desperately crucial issue of which it could very definitely be said that a great many sane people have ever given the matter any thought whatsoever. In your annual report last year, 268 pages, do you know how many Union flags featured in any of the graphics um, in those glossy pages? Uh, of all the briefings that I got for this meeting, that was not one of them, I'm afraid. Thank Mr. Wilde. Would you to take a guess? I, I had no idea. Well, it was zero. Mm. Do you find that surprising? But we learned that the citizens of the UK may have to adapt to a new regime of compulsory patriotism, which, as we all know, is the most meaningful kind of patriotism. We learned that the UK's government has decided that the UK's flag will fly henceforth from every UK government building all day, every day, though it's possible that this is less a sinister gesture of nationalist set dressing and more a desire to maximise the use of current flag stocks before Scotland takes the St Andrew's Cross off it. Let's have a flapping flag sound effect as long as you're standing to attention and saluting while you paste it in. We've learned, or at least reached the melancholy realisation, that despite Brexit being done, the associated culture war nonsenses are not. And we've learned that we are perhaps six months away from a normality in which no British politician will dare appear in public without wearing a Union Jack waistcoat, a tie with the Queen on it, a Remembrance Day poppy behind each ear, and a hat shaped like a Spitfire.
For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Now, Schloss Elmau is the ultimate luxury spa destination. It's situated in an alpine sanctuary of breathtaking beauty, just 60 miles from Munich and 25 miles from Innsbruck. It's owned and run by Dietmar Muller-Elmau, who joins me on the line now. Dietmar, very good to speak to you again. Hello, Georgina. Good to talk to you. Uh, Schloss Elmau is really two hotels in one, isn't it? Tell me a little bit of your wonderful history. Well, it was built in 1916 by my grandfather, who was a philosopher and a writer, very popular, and he wanted to have a place where he could meet his uh, readers and uh, uh, devotees, as you may say, and it was a very cultural place. Already during, it opened during the war. It was started, the construction started before the war. It was opened during the war by Prince Max von Baden, who was uh, later on the, the chancellor who signed the capitulation in the First World War. And already in the first year, 1916, were about 150 concerts of classical music. So Elma, from, from its start, was a place for classical music. And um, it burned down in 2005. Um, and then I bought it from my family and rebuilt it as a cultural hideaway and a luxury spa. And I added in 2015 a second hotel called The Retreat. Uh, which was the residence of the heads of state for the G7 summit. At that time, it was David Cameron visiting uh, with Barack Obama and Angela Merkel. And we continued the tradition of music, classical music. It's the only hotel in the world that, that features uh, about 220 concerts a year with, with the greatest artists of our time uh, in jazz and classical music. And in addition, we have a huge bookstore in the hotel because reading is one of the major activities of the people. Uh, on vacation, and uh, so we also invite authors. Uh, every year we invite the Booker Prize winners and the winners of all the competitions in around the world. And um, so it's a, it's a cultural hideaway, but without the spa, no author, no writer, no musician would come to this place, I assume. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Um, I've seen your incredible concert hall. I mean, it's beautifully, beautifully done, and the, the acoustics yeah. are amazing. As you say, the, yeah. the, the bookstore is fabulous, but also just the region. I mean, it's so beautiful where you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, of course, like everybody in the world, you've been knocked by COVID. Yes, we've been closed for five months. Um, the last five months we've been closed, and we've been closed last year two months. So within the last 12 months, we've been basically closed for seven months, um, almost eight months. And we'll be, continue to be closed for another two months at least, I assume, until the end of May, if the Germans get to their senses and do a lockdown like you did in Britain before you get enough COVID uh, uh, vaccinations. Uh, maybe Britain will share some of its surplus now with Germany. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We've we've already shipped 20, 30 million doses to the UK, so maybe they give us maybe a few million back. <laughs> and um, and I think once the you know there's enough vaccinations um, and we have done the lockdown before, we'll be able to open. So I don't think um, it will be. Um, um, earlier than end of May, but end of May is, is what I suspect. So, well, just in time, just in time for our annual yoga summit. Exactly. Now, that's the thing I really wanted to talk about because what you've yeah. got is this really impressive series of events that you've planned mm -hmm. for once you can open, and that does start with yoga. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, we we started already ten, fifteen years ago with the Jiva Mukti Yoga Center, and um, I told uh, our yoga director that you know we need to be 
um, open to all the different yoga styles. So we started to invite the, the teachers from different styles, from America, from, from Germany, from India. And um, so they have about 20 uh, retreats over the year. We have daily yoga classes, of course, every day. There's a big yoga center. But in addition, there are these retreats. And then I had the idea for some years back, four or five years back, that we would invite them all to come together at the same time so that the guests would be able to find out which yoga fits best for them, um, which style, which teacher. And then they can, can try out different styles of yoga. And then also we have these teachers coming together, and it's a great atmosphere. Even though I didn't realize how much yoga teachers hate each other from different <laughs> styles, but in Elma, because of the spa, they're all compromised. So the spa has a very civilization, uh, civilizatory effect on everybody here. Um, because, you know, when you go after the yoga class into the Japanese onsen, it's so relaxing. So uh, you don't feel the pain from two hours yoga or so. Or you go swimming or you go to the saunas and so on. So that's very, it works very well together to have the spa and the yoga. Absolutely. Now you've also got a number of music festivals coming up over the summer. Yes. Um, well, we have, as I said before, about 220 concerts a year. And um, this year's season, I hope in June, is a highlight of the year. For me personally, it's the highlight of the highlight. It's Grigory Sokolov, the most famous pianist of our time. Um, who will perform. He's here for a couple of almost a week because he's also doing a recording here. And he's presenting a young uh, uh, pianist, Alexandra Dogvan, which he thinks is the superstar of tomorrow. And so they will have two concerts, uh, June 10 and 12. And that's what I'm looking very, very much forward. I absolutely hope we'll be open by then because this is, for me, every year the highlight of this. Year. But then a few uh, days later, uh, end of June, there's a classical music festival with Janine Johnson, and she's one of the most famous violin players uh, of the world, a very close friend, and uh, there's two concerts a day, it's also some literature, but mostly concerts of the romantic area that we have each year in, in June. And so it goes on like that, and then in July and August is the main holiday season, so we do a lot of kids' programs soccer camps with the with coaches from the German Bundesliga teaching I mean for it's a real treat for the children of our guests because they would never get these kind of coaches in their normal life and so there's five day uh, um, soccer camps and then there's chess academy and science labs and yoga um, uh, classes craft workshops etc etc and in addition there's every second day uh, uh, there's a concert or a book presentation and, and uh, the most famous artist in July is Igor Levit, very famous pianist, and Gautier Capuçon, one of the best cellists in the world. He has a, in fact, he has a, a, um, a master class here, which brings in some young cellists from around the world to teach. And uh, then end of August uh, is the most famous baritone singer of our time. Christian Gera has his own Liedwoche, a singer. Um, and um, this, this is the second time we're doing it. Uh, we started it uh, two years ago. He does it every two years. And uh, right after that, there is a recording from Brad Meldau and Ian Bostridge. Ian Bostridge is a very famous tenor from Britain, and Brad Meldau is one of the most acclaimed jazz pianists in the world. And they actually, two years ago, did a world premiere here of a joint collaboration they got to know each other here some years ago, where they do Dichterliebe from Schumann and a jazz composition which Brad Miller composed for Ian Bostridge. It was already performed in Wigmore Hall and Carnegie Hall, etc., etc., but now they do the recording um, uh, with Deutsche Grammophon, I assume, um, here in, in Schloss Elmau. 
And so it goes on like that. Uh, um, and then the next highlight is a, is a festival week with Daniel Hope, um, a violin player, very famous one with uh, some of his friends, King Singers. And then for me, this, the, another big highlight of the year is the European Jazz Festival, where we feature the greatest stars from Scandinavia um, coming together. It was supposed to happen last November, but then we had to cancel it. So we, we had moved it one year ahead. Fantastic. Uh, because we were close in November. Yeah. So much to come, um, Dietmar. It sounds yeah. absolutely fantastic. And as I say, in this beautiful, beautiful location. So yeah. wishing you very, very good luck with it all. Thank you so much, Georgina. Thank you for, for, for joining us. So that was Dietmar Muller-Elmer from Schloss Elmer. And of course, there are many more details about them on their website. That's all we have time for on today's programme, which was produced by Marcus Hippie. And our studio engineer was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Uh, I'm here with you for a few hours yet on Monocle Weekends. So thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.